Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. For today's episode, we were lucky enough to bring back Latter-day Saint philosopher and theologian Adam Miller to talk about his new book, Original Grace. Of the many incredible books that we've read from Adam, this one we think might have the most potential to really change the way that we engage with God and the world. We'll let Adam explain the major thesis of the book, but we'll just say that in many ways it entirely upends traditional understandings of concepts like justice, suffering, mercy, punishment, and of course, grace. For anyone that has ever felt that they simply aren't good enough, Adam mines Latter-day Saint scripture and teachings to show us that it was never our job to save ourselves. As he puts it, grace-filled partnership with Christ was the plan all along. Adam even shares some recent scholarship that shows that one of our faith's foundational scriptures about grace, it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do, has been misread and misunderstood so widely and for so long that its original meaning has been almost reversed. Needless to say, we're very excited for you to hear this conversation. Adam Miller earned a BA in comparative literature from Brigham Young University and an MA and PhD in philosophy from Villanova University. His book, Original Grace, was published by BYU's Maxwell Institute and Desert Book. Adam is the author of several others, including some of our favorites, like Letters to a Young Mormon and An Early Resurrection. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Adam Miller as much as we did. Welcome, Adam Miller. It's great to, great to have you back on the podcast. It's great to be here. We're, uh, we're super excited to talk about your new book, Original Grace. Um, we have maybe written down more questions for this book than any interview we've ever done. There was just, <laughs> it was so meaty. And like within each chapter, there were at least like, I felt four or five things that we needed to talk about. So um, we'll, we'll, at the same time, we'll try to make this an appropriate length for, for listeners. And um, I'm, but I'm just going to assume that that's a compliment. So <laughs> <laughs> I could have made that more clear, I think. Um, it, it absolutely was a compliment. I, I paused. Mul- I was the one that went through this book first, and I had to pause multiple times to tell Aubrey how enthusiastic I was about it. And hopefully that was clear that that was a compliment. Yeah, yeah, good, good. <laughs> okay, I'm getting, I'm getting better. Okay, well, I did, I did want to ask, I felt like of all the things I've read from you, which is not everything, but most things, um, at least within the, uh, the Latter-day Saint uh, realm, this felt like a potentially more more deeply personal and more vulnerable book than what I've read, because it's not, it's not just theology and it's not. And with an early resurrection, even we talked about how it felt like a very devotional book, but there was more, there was more personal story. And I felt like I got to know you and and a little bit about your family, a little bit more in this book, um, in large part due to anecdotes and and messages um, from your father that are interwoven throughout the book. I wonder, and I, I wondered if it's okay to ask, um, I guess first of all, if your if your father's life and and his death, which was quite recent, led in some way, in some direct or indirect way, to the writing of this book. That's a good question. My dad is a big part of the book now, as it stands. Uh, he died in uh, June 2020, a little over two years ago. Now, I was about halfway through the first draft of the book. Uh, when he passed away, and about halfway through that first draft, then I I started trying to write about his death as part of the book. 
And by the time I finished the first draft then of the book, two things were clear to me that one, the book was twice as long as it should be. <laughs> uh, think of how many questions you'd have had then. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, uh, the part that I'd begun to shoehorn in the middle about my dad needed to, to be like the, the backbone uh, yeah. of the book. Right. And so I, I went back and I, I cut and I cut and I reorganized and, uh, and I tried to weave my dad's own life and voice more directly into the fabric of the book. And, uh, and I think for me, I mean, obviously at the root of every person's life is, you know, the grace that they received from their parents, right? The gift of life itself. And, and so both in that respect and in, and in terms of the way that my, my dad exemplifies for me in many ways, what it means to try to live a Christian life. But, uh, I think it was a pretty good match. Yeah, it, it did. It, for me, it, it turned out really, really beautifully. Um, maybe one place to start with sort of the, the theology of the book is with, a, uh, maybe we could establish a definition for the word justice. Um, some might say, at least, and and I'm very open to you dis- disputing this point of view, but some might say that the book in some ways radically redefines the word justice, or at least uh, at least a common understanding of, the, of, of that word. Could you share how you define justice, justice and sort of how you got there theologically? Yeah, I think in lots of ways it's the, it's the key to how the book tries to rethink justice. Uh, I mean, to how it tries to rethink grace, how it rethinks justice. Um, because at the end of the day, they're deeply intertwined, and how we think about one is going to determine how we think about the other. Uh, traditionally, we tend to think about, I think we've inherited a way of thinking about justice and grace that treats them as in some way opposites to one another. Yeah, right? We've inherited a kind of model of, of grace that treats grace as a, a kind of special exception to what justice demands, right? As a kind of uh, get out of free get out of jail free card as a way of skirting what the law requires. Um, and then what, of course, what happens is that uh, grace versus works debates all unfold around uh, arguments in terms of how big that exception is, <laughs> how big of an exception can you get to the demands of justice? Just a little exactly. teeny one, right? As Latter-day Saints have traditionally argued or a really <laughs> great big giant fat one, right? As, uh, uh, as many Protestants have traditionally argued, uh, and at the end of the day, I don't, I don't find uh, either ways of, of framing that the problem very helpful because I think they're both grounded in a kind of suspect uh, picture of what justice is and how justice works. This experiment, the book uh, Original Grace, is a kind of experiment in, in seeing what happens when we just assume that. God's grace and God's justice are on the same team, on the same side, right? Not working against one another, but working with one another. It's a little experiment in seeing what happens when uh, we think about grace as the thing that justice requires, or when we think about grace as the very thing that the law itself demands. Uh, another way to say this, of course, is uh, is to borrow a term from uh, from Steve Young and, and your great interview with him just just a couple of weeks ago that that the that what the law requires is love, 
right? Love isn't a kind of a way around what the law demands of us. Love and grace are the very thing that the law demands of us. Uh, and I think when we set the problem up that way, then we end up in a very different place in terms of how we think about justice and in terms of how we think about grace. Yeah. The- I think that, I think that a useful, you, you talk a lot about Stephen um, Robinson's book, Believing Christ, and the parable of the bicycle, which I loved because I think that really has become a cultural touch point for all of us when it comes to the the topic of of grace. And and you say that um, you really think that, the, I actually think you say that this is the most important book of lay theology in, in the history of our tradition. And that in the spirit of honoring that book and and kind of in carrying on its work, you you actually really challenge a lot of the assumptions that Robinson makes. So I feel like that's a good starting place because we've all heard the parable of the bicycle and that's something that we're really comfortable and familiar with. So maybe you can, can you start there and kind of walk out how your definition of, of grace is different than what we're, what we've learned in the parable of the bicycle. Yeah. So that book, Believing Christ, uh, was a really important book for me when I read it on my mission for the first time, right about the time when it came out. And in lots of ways, it, it introduced me to the notion of grace. And to the degree that it did that, uh, I think it introduced me to something like the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> it turns out, uh, because it turns on it turns on this transformed experience uh, of life in light of God's love and grace. Uh, and at the heart of uh, Brother Robinson's really powerful book is that parable of the bicycle, right, that tells a story uh, about a little girl who wants to buy a bike, uh, but she only has, right, she can only put together a, a couple of dollars, uh, and the bike is going to cost $100 or something like this. Uh, and once the once the little girl, though, has uh, worked really hard and scraped together the couple of dollars that, that she could manage to put together, uh, the, her father steps in, all right, and with, uh, with an act of grace, then fills in the gap, right, which in this case is the bulk uh, of the price of the bicycle. Uh, but that together then, uh, they could manage to afford or deserve uh, the, the prize here, the bicycle. I think what's really powerful, what I found really powerful, and a lot of people I think really found really powerful about the parable uh, is about how far how far it went to expand what you and I might have understood Christ could contribute to our salvation right uh, as I put it uh, as I put it earlier in terms of that classical grace versus works debate uh, we might have latter we might as latter day saints have have been willing to allow that uh, that at the end of the day Christ can make up a little bit a gap for us, right? As long as we got there most of the way by ourselves. Uh, but what's really powerful about the parable is the way that it, it shifts the proportion between grace and works so dramatically. Uh, though at the end of the day, what I find, I think, uh, still dissatisfying about the parable is the way that it still frames grace as a kind of exception to what the law demands, the way that it still frames works and grace uh, as uh, as opposed to one another, uh, rather than seeing them as uh, as uh, two aspects of the same basic work. At the end of the book, I, I mention a 
uh, a talk that I heard Brother Robinson himself give uh, just a little before he died, uh, in which he, on the 20th anniversary of, of the book's publication, was reflecting on uh, his own experience of having written and published Believing Christ. And uh, he shared some of the things that he, he'd wish he'd done differently or, or said differently or, or points he'd made more clearly. Uh, and one of the things that he wished he'd, he'd made clearer, uh, he said, was that for him at the end of the day, the parable wasn't about how Jesus managed with his grace uh, to make up for all of the works that uh, the little girl wasn't able to do on her own behalf. But at the end of the day, the parable is much better understood uh, as the little girl uh, participating in grace as much as she could, and then Jesus responding to her with grace. That it was a parable about grace being met with additional grace, uh, and that that, at the end of the day, is how you fulfill the law, because the law, what the law demands uh, from both us and from God himself is grace and more grace. Love that. Um, maybe when we when we talk about when we talk about justice, um, there is this there is this feeling, and you talk about this in the book that a tra- at least a traditional view of justice is that good um, th- that justice returns is a mirror, right? It returns good for good and evil for evil. Um, you say that justice returns good for good and good for evil, which I think. I can imagine a lot of people, a lot of Protestants for sure, but also a lot of Mormons, Latter-day Saints getting out their scriptures and, you know, banging their finger on the page and say, that's not, that's not what this says. And there are any number of, you know, hellfire slash justice scriptures um, that might contest uh, where, where do you scripturally and philosophically sort of mine for this good for good and good for evil idea. And how do you respond to people that might be pointing at other scriptures to contest that idea. Yeah, I think the suspect, the the kind of suspect model of justice that we've inherited is a model of justice that sees grace as the opposite of justice because it understands, as you put it, the role of justice to, to 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 simply return to you whatever it was that you sent out into the world. Uh, so that the role of justice is uh, to return good to you if you did good. But the role of justice then is also to return evil to you if you've done evil. Uh, and that's a pretty common common sense notion of justice. But I think it's also a, a pretty suspect notion of justice, uh, if only because that notion of justice requires there for there to be a kind of moral imperative for people to do evil or for God himself to do evil, right, in response to evil, as if there could be such a thing as as a moral imperative to do evil. <laughs> uh, all of that does at the end of the day uh, is not only implicate us in the project of doing evil, uh, but it also makes the people who are already evil worse, right? It makes them more evil, which, is, which means that justice has this kind of... Uh, if we think about it in those terms, then justice has this kind of a perpetual tendency to undermine its own project of making the world just. A much better model, I think, uh, if we're grasping for straws here, is something like the Sermon on the Mount, 
right? If we go way outside the center of, of the Christian canon, <laughs> uh, take something like the Sermon on the Mount as our model for justice. Then we get in Matthew 5, we get Jesus's own explanation of how the law works. And according to Jesus, what the law requires, uh, right? And Jesus in Matthew 5 says again and again, he, he says, I know this isn't what you've heard. Uh, I know this wasn't what, you, what you've been told all your life, uh, but what you've been told all your life is wrong, he says. Uh, and it's going to sound like I'm destroying the law, he says, but, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm actually making it possible for you to fulfill the law. And what the law requires, Jesus says, is that uh, you must not only love your friends and your neighbors, you must also love your enemies. You must not only respond to people who do good to you with what's good. You must, in light of God's law, you are commanded uh, to respond to people who do evil to you with what's good. And Jesus follows this up with a very clear explanation of the fact that you have to do this because this is what God himself does. God sends his reign on the just and the unjust, right? He causes his son to rise on the good and the evil. And if we want to be like him, then we have to respond in this same way. And doing this, of course, uh, responding to good with good will help people to be more just who are already just and responding to evil with what's good will also help those who are evil to become just, right? In which case, justice isn't fighting against itself. Uh, is actually seeding the ground with the conditions necessary for justice to flourish. And I think the kicker here then for me is that if that's what justice is, if justice is responding to both good and evil with good, then justice is just the business of grace, because that's what grace is. Right? Grace is when you just always and only do what's good. You love those who love you, and you love those who are your enemies. Uh, that's both how you make the world just, and that's what grace itself looks like, not as opposites of one another, but as but as two ways of as, as the key here then to fulfilling God's law. So maybe just to drive this home, could you do that first reading from chapter four? So throughout, I've been uh, I've been there's kind of a frame in terms of which I contrast what I propose as uh, as a Latter Day Saint doctrine of original grace to this more traditional doctrine of original sin, right? And the beating heart, I think, of the doctrine of original sin is the idea uh, that suffering can be deserved because evil has to be given in return for evil, right? This, 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 this very, this that very uh, uh, traditional notion uh, of justice. So I say, according to the logic of original sin, the purpose of the law is punishment. The law's purpose is to judge what is deserved. The law is a divine mechanism for judging who deserves to suffer or not, and to what degree. The point of the law is accusation. The logic of grace, on the other hand, takes the purpose of the law to be love. The law's purpose is still to judge, but now to judge what's needed. The law is a divine mechanism for judging what is needed to relieve suffering and liberate sinners. The point of the law is grace. The contrast between these two logics is sharp. Where sin reasons backwards about whether someone's suffering is deserved, grace reasons forward about how best to respond to that suffering. Where sin understands God's law as a tool of condemnation, grace understands God's law as a discipline of compassion. Where sin uses the law to obligate suffering, grace uses the law to command succor. Sin begins from the original assumption of guilt and concludes that suffering is deserved. Grace begins from the original reality of suffering and concludes that redemption is needed. 
Sin uses God's law to ask what is deserved. Grace uses God's law to ask what is needed. I absolutely, absolutely love this. And that might, that might be, that might be my favorite part of the book because I think, I think it's such a paradigm, uh, such a new paradigm and it gets rid of, it, it makes the law something that you can get excited about. Again, I think a lot of people when they're sort of going through when they're sort of going through life and maybe a, a process of maturity, um, there's always a there's always a descent into into chaos typically. And I think in in that in that descent into chaos, there is often a throwing out of the law because what the law has meant up to that point in many people's lives is guilt and shame and not enoughness and. When you say when you say that the law in the logic of grace um, is used to ask what's needed, then you can get excited about it again, and you can say I can be part I can be part of a sort of a, a grace filled world that's not just going to benefit me, but that's going to benefit everybody. And with a re embracing of the law, I think then becomes then comes the ascent again into a into a more more mature faith that still that still embraces the law, but does it in a in a very different way. Yeah, I think that this is what this is what it looks like to undergo the kind of conversion that constitutes being a Christian, right? You undergo this kind of fundamental change in terms of your relationship to God's law. You undergo uh, a change from thinking that the law is about deciding what people deserve, right? Whether or not people do or don't deserve to be loved, uh, as if the purpose of the law was to continually carve out exceptions to its own command that everybody should be loved, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's, it's, it's crazy, I think. I mean, it's, it's backwards. It's upside down. It only, it ends up, you end up using the law then only in this way that hurts you and that hurts other people, both with guilt and with shame and with fear and, and with accusation, right? The law's own fundamental purpose presents itself to you not as love, but as accusation. Uh, and that's a kind of trap. Right? It prevents us. From, it prevents us from fulfilling the law. It's a way of holding the law that uh, that harms us, and that prevents its own fulfillment. And this, I think, is what Jesus is trying to explain in the Sermon on the Mount. That if you use the law in this way, then you will forever and always prevent it from being fulfilled. You have to instead undergo this uh, undergo this transformation in your relationship to the law, in which you begin to see that the law, what the law demands, is love. In every single case, if someone's done good to you, it demands love. If someone does wrong to you, it demands love. The moral obligation is always and only to do what's good in return for, for whatever you receive. And that experience of the law is liberating because then the law is no longer about what people do or don't deserve. It's not about whether or not I deserve to be loved, passive tense. It's about how here and now I must act in love uh, in this active sense. Right. Uh, and that's it's liberating and, and empowering. And it's uh, it's at the heart, I think, of what it means to undergo this transformation that uh, that uh, constitutes what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. Does- I also felt like it. I also felt like it made me think of the ways that I use the law to condemn myself. Like, it, it, you know, it's easy to see how you can hurt someone else with the law. But I, f- I, I love this way of thinking because of the way it liberated me from my own shame. Like if the, if the law is always meant to 
help me to be in connection with God's love. Like in a, in a way the, the law is always supposed to be a relief. Like it's a, it's, it's how to live in a way that you won't be suffering. I, it, I felt like the thing that I kept coming back to was just this feeling of relief, like not carrying the weight of maybe not living the law so perfectly that I deserve some sort of withdrawal of blessings or, you know, however I doctored up punishment, which is really what I was talking about. So I love that. And I also felt like, I feel like we are often um, trying to, you know, we are recognizing dissonance around letter of the law and spirit of the law. And that's like a conversation you hear kind of around it, you know, in Sunday schools forever. We've, we're always talking about that because I think everybody can feel that there's something not that we're not quite nailing down. And I felt like this really fleshed out that issue that spirit of the law and letter of the law, like neither of them, neither of them totally capture what you're saying, which is that it, it is always in the work of love. And, and so we, I think we can recognize dissonance about the letter of the law. Like there's something that feels a little bit off. Like there's something a little bit too rigid and punishing about letter of the law and no exceptions. And, but I think that this really helped me to understand what that dissonance is and that that's that it should always be in the work of love as opposed to punishment. But, but it brings me to this question that I, I wonder if you worry that this incentivizes people to just relax, like to stop trying so hard. If, you know, if there isn't a punishment, a, an impending punishment, then, then can we just stop? Can we just like go with the flow and, and stop trying so hard to to work for, you know, toward this perfection that we'll never achieve. So basically, how are we going to avoid like the cheap grace that you talk about? Yeah, I guess the question for me is, is it going to incentivize people to stop doing what? Is it going to incentivize people to stop trying to earn their way into heaven? Is it going to incentivize people to stop trying to deserve God's love? Is it going to incentivize people to stop reading the whole of the world in terms of what people do or don't deserve? Yeah, good. I hope it radically de-incentivizes <laughs> that whole way of that whole way of living and seeing the world. Now, what what's supposed to you know uh, what's supposed to happen next? Of course, is that uh, that opens the door to actually fulfilling the law. Right? If you use the law in that backwards, harmful way, it makes it impossible to fulfill the law. And in fact, that kind of backwards and harmful, passive way uh, ends up trapping us uh, in a, with a sense of uh, futility and hopelessness and powerlessness. Because it turns out it's impossible. Even if you, even if you somehow perfectly kept the law, it would be impossible to ever deserve love by way of the law. Because that's not what the law is for. <laughs> you can't you can't get there that way. You can't do you can't use that to do that. The only thing that you can use the law for, the only moral way to use the law, is to judge uh, what love is needed here and now in light of the law. And that is that's that's an empowering way of experiencing the law. But it's also it's also really really hard work. I don't know if you've ever tried to love somebody, uh, but I can imagine Audrey maybe that Tim's. <laughs> Tim's not always the easiest person in the world to love. It's really hard work, but it's a, it's a very different work, right? Than than you rolling out of bed in the morning and thinking to yourself, Oh, what can I do today to get Tim to love me? What do I have to do in order to be loved? That's, you can't do that. You'll never win. You'll never succeed. If you roll out of bed in the morning, then you think to yourself, what does Tim need today from me in terms of love? How can I best love Tim? That's what the law is for. 
right? And that's how you fulfill the law. And that's really hard work, but also a very different kind, uh, profoundly liberating and, and one that we can participate in with God. Wow. Could yeah. we dive in a little bit more on sort of the logic of punishment? And I'm, I'm wondering if, I'm wondering if you would say that this, uh, you know, logic of original grace requires something different of us than it does of, of God. Um, for instance, like there, I can't think of any scriptures off the top of my head. Maybe, you know, if you go back to the law of Moses, but, um, that require us to, that require us to punish anyone, um, based on, you know, based on our view of the law, um, the scriptures that speak of God's judgment based on the law seemingly are, are plentiful. I'm thinking even of restoration scripture, you know, DNC 19, that has does have this beautiful theology in terms of very explicitly sort of getting rid of eternal conscience, eternal conscience torment, you know, which I think well, all of us have lived in fear of that have inherited sort of a Protestant tradition. Uh, you know, it says eternal suffering is my suffering, endless suffering is my su- suffering, meaning. Uh, but if you look just a couple verses later, I think it's verse 15, repent, lest I spite, smite you by the rod of my mouth and by my wrath and by my anger and your sufferings be sore, how sore you know not. You know, so what are, what's going on here? You know, does God, does God punish? Uh, should, you know, should we punish? What does, and is there, should we throw that word out or is there, is there a rethinking of that word? Yeah. Yeah. These are really good questions. Uh, I think a lot of it comes back to how we think about punishment and what we think punishment is. If, for instance, uh, we think that punishment is a moral obligation to do evil to someone in response to the evil that they've done, then I've, I've already stated my position that I think that that's, yeah. that's nonsensical. There's no such thing in any scenario uh, as a moral obligation to do evil, especially in response to evil. So if that's what punishment is, then that's out uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and as far as it's, for, it's out for Jesus, as far as I, I can tell for Jesus, the law never commands that. The law itself never commands that. Responding to uh, responding to evil with good, that's, that's not mercy, right? That's not an exception to the law. That's not a way around what the law requires. Responding to evil with good, that's what the law itself requires. Uh, so two, two other thoughts about this is that on the one hand, I, I think uh, we want to be we want to be very clear-eyed about the fact uh, that being a sinner is a terrible thing, right? Wickedness never was happiness, uh, and being a sinner is a way of being in the world that not only harms the people around you but continually harms you, right? It's a way of being in the world. Uh, in which you constantly suffer this sort of debilitating self-harm. That's real. That's real. And the suffering that it creates is real. Those consequences uh, are natural and predictable. Uh, and uh, and as long as we continue to live that way in the world, there's no way around them. The key for me is to is to see is to argue that that those natural consequences aren't a moral obligation. Right? The fact that I cause myself, the fact that I harm myself by being a sinner doesn't mean that the suffering that follows is itself a moral obligation required by justice and that God himself is invested in making sure that I suffer as a result. Uh, no, 
Now, sure, suffering follows when I harm myself by being a sinner, but there's no moral obligation for that suffering to follow. And in fact, what the law does require is that the law requires that I receive whatever good I need in order to stop harming myself and the people around me. The law requires that I receive whatever good I need in order to stop being unjust and become just so that the law can be fulfilled. Now, what I need in any given moment <laughs> may or may not line up very neatly with what I think that I want. Uh, and what I need in any given moment, right, the treatment uh, the treatment that I need in order to, to be healed uh, may be itself difficult and painful and trying, right? I may, I may need all different kinds of, uh, of discipline and pedagogy, right, to help, me, to help me straighten up and fly right and be healed. Uh, and that can be a difficult process. But that difficult process is not a punishment, right? That difficult process is God giving me the good that I need uh, in order to become good. Uh, it is itself the goodness that the law requires. It is itself an expression of his love. And in that sense, to the degree that, that the law requires in some instances uh, certain sorts of uh, discipline, to the degree that that discipline is good, uh, then that makes perfect sense. And it lines up, I think, with what we understand about about God and his love and uh, and the fact that it, as the purpose of his law, uh, that love is is unconditional, right? The law is not conditional. And the law requires love, which means God's love is unconditionally required by his own law. So I, can you talk about that a little bit more? Because I, I'm thinking of like King Benjamin, and I, I love that part where you bring up King Benjamin and how um, the sin is really not with the beggar. It's with the people calling the beggar sinful. You know, like that. that's, that's the sin that obscures their their vision of like what's actually happening. And that's what King Benjamin is preaching about. But I just, I feel like lis- listening to what you just said, like, I feel like there's a way someone could hear that and say like, yeah, I, this is for someone's good. Like I'm, I'm withdrawing love or I'm, I'm giving the, the, these people consequences by, you know, not, not giving the, you know, in the King Benjamin example, not extending my hand because he, he, I'm helping him to, you know, repent i'm helping him to get better and and so i'm 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 disciplining him in the name of love you know what i mean like how how Mm -hmm. how do we navigate that because i i think that probably is the justification in a lot of people's minds yeah there's always the risk right that doing the difficult thing for people who we love that we think is the thing that they need there's always the risk uh, that it that it's just a kind of shallow justification mm-hmm. for our own retributive <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, for our own retributive desires, right? Uh, there's always a risk uh, that the law can once again be repurposed uh, in these kinds of sinful ways, especially to justify ourselves or justify not doing what the law is actually requiring us to do. But it's also the case, I think, that, you know, often enough, often enough, it's clear what we need to do, right, in any given instance. Uh, You probably don't wake up very often, Aubrey, and think to yourself, I just don't really know what 
what the law would require me to do today in order to in order to love Tim. <laughs> I don't know how best to do that. Yeah. Most of the time, it's probably pretty darn clear, you know, what yeah, we have to do to true. love each other. But sometimes we end up in difficult positions, right, where it's not clear exactly what the best thing to do would be, how best to help someone, whether or not we're actually in a position uh, to do that, to do what's required, whether or not that conflicts with my obligations to help other people, how to manage all those competing requirements uh, to love and give what goods are needed. Uh, and that that can be that can be tricky sometimes that can be complicated and then uh sometimes that kind of that kind of devil comes out only by by prayer and fasting right it requires a lot of care and a lot of maybe trial and error and discernment and forgiveness and patience and praying for guidance as we we try to figure out the best way to apply here the command to love in light of what we do know about the general principles out laid out in, in god's law so of course we can always abuse it, uh, uh, but also it's just sometimes the case that it's it's hard to know exactly what to do and how best to do it, and it's hard to be, it's hard to have the power to do it. Can we talk a little bit about the situation of what you might call undeserved suffering? Some of the some of the deepest cognitive distance that I've I've seen um, for people comes when they've lived their life in a certain way with the idea that there that there's an expectation that based on their faithfulness, you know, to the law that they'll be that they'll be blessed. And even after that type of life, uh they're faced with horrible suffering in their uh in their family or in their career or whatever it is. I've seen this I've this I've seen this happen a couple of times personally with with people who have gone through something terrible after devoting their lives to what they, I, I think, thought was was faith and and love, and have questioned, you know, even the existence of God or the goodness of God, based on based on suffering that they've been they've been given. What what what's I, I guess first question: What in your mind is going on there when someone has seemingly, I guess, we'll quote this, kept the law, but they're but they're facing terrible terrible suffering. Yeah. One way of one way of describing the premise of the book uh, is the claim uh, that suffering cannot be deserved. Right. The idea that evil must be uh, returned in response for evil. That's the idea that suffering can be deserved. Right, that there's a that suffering can have a kind of uh, moral valence, right? That it can be a kind of suffering can be a kind of uh, indication of the fact that evil is something you deserve in light of what you have or haven't done. That's at the heart, I think, of that suspect way of thinking about the law and justice. To think that the law itself is ever about deciding what someone does or doesn't deserve, rather than deciding what some someone does or doesn't need. Uh, in light of whatever kind of suffering they're experiencing. If we can peel those two things apart, if we can peel apart the law uh, and suffering to see the law as a response to suffering, rather than seeing the law as a justification for suffering, uh, then I think we're, we're in a much stronger position to see how the law always requires us to respond with what's good, always to give what's needed rather than attempting to judge what someone does or doesn't deserve in light of 
what they have or haven't suffered. Um, Love that. Yeah. In the book, I think one way you put it is the natural order of things is not equivalent to the moral order or the moral order of things is not equivalent to the natural order of things, something, something like that, which is a, which is a simplistic potentially, but potentially comforting way of viewing the world. Everything makes sense. You know, when you, when you say that all suffering is sort of in alignment with, with righteousness or whatever you want to call it um, until, you know, until it's not, until you see that that's, that's not the case. And then it can cause, uh, it can cause a lot of dissonance, but can we, can I take this one step further? And this isn't, this isn't something you address specifically in the book, but when you, when you look out of the world and see, and see great suffering, suffering that's clearly undeserved and doesn't seem to have necessarily a, you know, a great purpose behind it. You know, there's not some huge amount of growth that's going to come out of this. And, uh, you know, maybe some, you could look at some of the worst travesties that we see going around in the world in terms of war or abuse or whatever it is. Why, why would, why would a loving, why would a loving God who always wants to, who always wants to give good, who always wants to give grace, allow these types of things. And I understand that this is a theological question as old as time. You know, this is, this is the problem of evil. But since I have a philosopher on, I thought I might as well get it out there and see if you can solve it for us once and for all. <laughs> yeah, people people should mark what's the what's the time here in the podcast. People should mark <laughs> Adam's about to mark answer. this moment when we when we crack this nut. Uh, for me, I think the key to thinking about suffering in a Christian way uh, is to de-weaponize suffering. Right to uncouple suffering from God's law as a kind of punishment, so that we don't we don't read suffering here as itself inherently a sort of accusation. But instead, we just let suffering we just let suffering be and recognize it as a kind of basic fact of reality that's woven into the very fabric of the universe. Right? If if what's at the heart of the universe. Uh, is not just one single God acting unilaterally to create everything as it is and thus being responsible for everything that follows. If instead what's at the heart of reality is something more like what Joseph Smith suggested, uh, a deep and fundamental set of relationships, right? The very fact of time and relationality uh, involved necessarily our experience of loss and resistance and suffering and these are just baked into the very fabric of the world as we have it, as the very conditions of possibility, not just for uh, the you know the difficulties that we face, but as the conditions of possibility for the world's own creation and progression. Right? If things are going to change and improve, then things have to change, and they have to arise, and they have to pass away, and we have to suffer other people's own agency and expressions of that agency, and we have to suffer forces beyond our control. This is part and parcel of the world being the thing that it is. And we shouldn't try to read out of those fundamental facts some moral judgments about the status of reality. But instead, I think, take morality itself as a name for God's approach to how to handle the nature of reality. Right? Morality, uh, God's law, this is, this is a way of handling the fact uh, that these difficulties are baked into the fabric of reality. And it's a way of bringing us together in love uh, to improve things and 
uh, and make them as good as possible and heal as much suffering as we can while in the process being willing to mourn with those who mourn in light of the kinds of things that simply are unavoidable. While we're asking you the biggest questions, what what does uh, the what does the doctrine of original grace say about the purpose of the whole thing? I mean, is that it? Because I think the paradigm of a test kind of falls apart. Yeah, the paradigm of a test certainly falls apart if what we're being tested for is whether or not we deserve to be loved. I I don't see it. I can't. I don't see it. Uh, that's uh, that's not a moral way to use God's law, and I can't imagine God using His own law uh, as a way of deciding whether or not He should or shouldn't love. It's imperative. That's the command: is to love. That's what God Himself does. Is it? A, is it? Is it a kind of? Is it a kind of test? Are we being? Are we being proven uh, throughout our experience here uh, in mortality? And you know, in in into I think the worlds before and beyond as well. Yeah, but what's what's being tested, I think, is is something much more like whether or not I will love. The test isn't whether or not I can we can figure out if I deserve to be loved and or to what degree. The test is whether or not I will love and participate in love. And that's a test that I can I can certainly fail or or, or succeed at uh, to one measure or another. And that's a test that at the end of the day uh, will or won't put me in the presence of God, both here and in the world to come. But none of it ever has anything to do with, with deciding whether or not people deserve to be loved. Uh, because those are those are mutually exclusive categories. They have nothing to do with each other, love and deserving to be loved. Yeah. Uh, can I, let me dive in a little bit on that, on that statement. I'm wondering, so let's say, let's say I'm a, I'm a person who's failing this test. I'm not, I'm not to loving. Love. Yeah, yeah. To, to love. Yeah. Um, does grace, does God's sort of original grace not cover my lack of, of lovingness and get, and get me there eventually? I understand that there's certainly a, let's say that that's, that's the state that I'm in right now. That's the time and, uh, the time and place in the universe that I'm occupying is not a loving, is not a loving place, but is there, is there room for me to get there at some point? Or is there, is there a final buzzer that's going to go off and, and I failed the test? And and for whatever reason, this universe creating grace what didn't seem to have enough pull on me in some way to, to get me there. Will at some point a buzzer go off that says the law is no longer in force. Uh, love is no longer required by God for you or of you. Uh, the answer to that, I think, is is no, right? There's no there's no point at which this law will no longer be enforced. There's no point at which love will no longer be commanded by God of Himself or by God of us. Is it possible for people to put them in a position to put themselves in a in a position where they simply refuse here and forever, in some sense, to participate? Love is not the kind of thing that, that can or ever will coerce people into loving. It's, again, antithetical to the very nature of, of love. But, but I, think we can, I think we have good reason to hope uh, that at the end of the day, my love is stronger than all of that fear that keeps us from loving. And then at the end of the day, love, love is going to win out.
Thank you. Maybe this is a good time to talk about the phrase, after all we can do. We loved this part in your book. Do you want to, can you just talk about the the insight that, um, I, is it Daniel McClellan? I think it was Daniel McClellan, is his name, that mm-hmm. he um, did quite a bit of research on this phrase from Joseph Smith's time. And I'd just love for you to talk about that before we move on. This, of course, has always been a touchstone for us as Latter-day Saints, right? Uh, 2 Nephi 25, 23. Did I get that right? <laughs> yeah. 20, uh, yeah, 25, 23. 25, 23. <laughs> I, I always doubt myself. Uh, in which it says, Nephi says, all right, we're saved by grace after all we can do. Uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, I think uh, as Daniel as Daniel McClellan has shown, and, and other other researchers other researchers demonstrated, it's it's pretty straightforwardly, convincingly clear that in the context of uh, early nineteenth uh, century eighteen hundreds usage, right, that what that phrase means uh, and what it would have meant to Joseph Smith and his and his contemporaries is that we are saved by grace despite all we can do, right? Being saved by grace after all we can do, that's an idiom. That means being saved by grace despite whatever we can manage to do. So I think just on, you know, uh, purely linguistic grounds, <laughs> the case is pretty straightforward. That's what it actually means in context uh, for Joseph Smith and his English. But also I think it's really clear that in the larger context of what Nephi is saying, uh, that that verse comes in the middle of a long explanation uh, on Nephi's part uh, of how in order to become Christians, we must uh, die to the law and come alive instead in Christ. He's trying, right? This verse right shows up dead center of, of, of a lengthy attempt to describe how we undergo this fundamental change in our relationship to the law, such that we no longer try to use the law to, to prove who does or doesn't deserve love but instead take up the law itself as an expression of Christ's love. Uh, And that, I think, you know, if we were to read a couple verses in either direction, uh, ought to be pretty clear to us too. (laughs) Yeah. I, I just feel like I'm, I've heard that enough times that I'm sort of like numb to what else it could mean, you know? So it felt like revolutionary to hear it described in any other way, because I just can't hear it fresh anymore. Is there a way that you would, if you could reword this for someone, like if you could give it new language, is there a way that you would say it clearer that no one could misunderstand this kind of grace that we're talking about? I know that I'm putting you on the spot, but I'm just curious, like what, how would you, how would you say this very short verse by grace, we are saved after all we can do that, that would maybe like help us remember the, the, what you think Nephi is really trying to say. Uh, <laughs> how about uh, by grace, we are saved. Period. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. I think that's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. 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 Could we it. could we do another reading, Adam? Sure. Um, if you want to just it's the right at the beginning of chapter 10. From the beginning of chapter 10, actually. I think it's about the first, I don't know, five or six little paragraphs. Right until the end of your invocation that you say has looped itself in your head. Life cannot be won, it can only be left. If God's grace is an active and original cause, yes, rather than a passive and belated effect, then what is grace? 
The morning my father died, I felt Benjamin's nothingness. I felt it open as I have many times before, like a hole in my chest. I felt it rush through that hole like a wind from nowhere, cool and intense, dissolving my heart and lungs and organs into a subtle burning static that pulsed behind my ribs and gathered with the weight of a smooth stone on my solar plexus. I can feel it even now as I write this, a still, small, radiating silence that burns in the pit of my stomach and quiets the noise in my head that both grounds me and unmakes me at once. The morning that my father died, I lay on the couch next to him, wrapped in a sheet with this nothingness whistling through me. In the gray pre-dawn light, I opened my eyes and saw him in his wheelchair, perfectly still, his head tilted just so, his chin on his chest, his shoulders slumped. Was he dead? I told myself I was imagining things. I told myself he was just for once resting and that I should let him rest. I knew that, regardless, this nothingness wasn't going away. I could try to run or hide, but it would endure. And enduring, it would leave, like a mute bruise on my heart, the same impression it always left. It would imply what it always implied. Regardless of circumstances, the nothingness would whisper, you are not going to win. Such whispers from the void no longer come as a surprise. They're routine and familiar. For some time now, even on ordinary days, this same impression has been the first thought to cross my mind in the morning and the last thought to settle in my head at night. What's more, sheer persistence has steadily condensed this whisper into a little prayer that, independent of my own intentions, I now, find, I now find myself repeating throughout the day. This bright echoing silence has looped itself in my head as an invocation. Surrender. You're not going to win. Life cannot be won. It can only be loved. Thank you so much. I, I think that's absolutely beautiful. If I were to connect this to some of your other writing, it feels like maybe what you're saying here is that your father witnessing your father's death was sort of a stark reminder for you was maybe a, a reminder for you that God's God's plan for you is is death and resurrection and that there is a way for you potentially to to experience to experience death and even resurrection now as you as you live here in your in your body yeah I think that's right I think you know my uh, my father's death my father's death is a is a stark reminder that nobody makes it out alive <laughs> right uh, everyone everyone all of us you me everyone we are all going to get sick and if we're lucky get old and and we're going to die and every one of us is going to lose everyone and everything time will claim all of it and if we go in thinking that the point here of life, that the very purpose of life is to win, is to prove that we can deserve something or claim something or own something. If we think that the whole point of, of God's own law is to prove to God that, that we can win or earn or deserve love, then we will be continually frustrated and disappointed and upset. 
because that's not what it's for and you can't get there that way. Uh, life is not that kind of thing and love is certainly not that kind of thing. Life cannot be won. You can't win, but you can love it. You can respond to whatever comes your way with love and charity and grace. And you can find in that work of love and charity and grace, just, you know, whatever the hardships you can find in it, peace and joy uh, and shared satisfaction. But that's a very, it's, it's hard work again, but, uh, but also that's a very different sort of work, right? It's a very different sort of project than, than waking up in the morning and, and thinking today I'm going to, today I'm going to win, today I'm going to prove it, today people are going to see it, uh, versus thinking, you know, what, what, what need, what's needed today, what must I give, uh, what gratitude mo- must I express, what goodness is needed from me. It's a very different project and it's, it's not one in which, it's one in which you abandon altogether the attempt to, to win. I think my favorite chapter of the book was the, um, the one on time where you, you kind of talk about how your orientations shifts when you start really accepting this idea of, you know, really accepting this idea of original grace, then your orientation toward the present really shifts. And instead of being obsessed with the past and believing that everything depends on the past and that you're just here collecting effects, you know, then it, it changes your orientation and you focus on what's being created right in front of you. And I really love this idea that each moment is being created by God. And sometimes we move through our life so distracted that in a way, there's a way you, that you say, you know, we can see that as a real rejection of what's being created right in front of us. And I feel like that has totally stayed with me since finishing your book that, you know, I'm noticing things that are very mundane that just I'm, I'm, I feel like have some power because I'm thinking of them as moments that are created for me right in this very second. And I feel like, you know, a little bit less distracted. And I feel like that's helped me ask that question, like what is needed as opposed to being really focused on the future and like where I'm going and where I would like God to be creating a moment for me, you know? So maybe could you just talk a little bit about that chapter and, and time and, and maybe how like being in the present can help us to believe original grace. Yeah. Well, there's, there's that old chestnut, right? Of course, about, about the present being a present. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) About how, you know, the present moment is itself a gift. And in lots of ways, it's, it's the fundamental gift. It's, it's the baseline expression of God's grace. Uh, The gift that is being given right here and now of this here. And now, you know, of course, and all that's, all that's a little, a little cheesy and, uh, and easy to easy to poke fun at, but also I think there's something really substantial to it. There are two wrong ways to use God's law and one right way to use God's law, right? The two wrong ways to use God's law are either in the past tense or the future tense, right? If mm. you use God's law in the past tense, then you're judging what you deserve here and now on the basis of what you had done before. Uh, and in which case you are trapped by whatever your previous actions were. The present moment is not a place of action. It's a place of consequence. And there's nothing you can do about it, right? You're stripped of agency. You're stripped of the capacity to choose and to change. Or you can, of course, use God's law as an attempt to win in the future, right? Some kind of praise or, uh, or reward that you were hoping to deserve. Either, either variation, right? The present, the past tense or the, or the future tense. Both of those are variations uh, of, of using the law to decide 
what someone does or doesn't deserve. And they both, they both end up trapping us in the past or the future and uh, locking us out of the present moment. The only, as far as I can tell, the only morally legitimate way to use God's law is, is always and only in the present tense. I have to judge right here and now what's needed right here and now, right? What does God's law require of me here and now? Not on the basis of what someone does or doesn't deserve, on the basis of what they did or didn't do or may or may not become, but what's needed here and now, what must I give? That's the command. That's the, that's where we feel the force of the imperative, right? That's where the necessity of, of this call to love and give uh, is grounded. And when we participate in that, right, when we're, when we're willing to respond to it, when we let the, our grip on the past and future go and leave that in God's hands, then then we're liberated from that burden. We, we allow him to carry it, and we're empowered in the present moment to actually choose and, and use our agency and, and make a difference and be different. Wow. I love that so much. Like that is, it, it feels so empowering. Like, and it, there's somewhere in the book where you talk about, you feel like your religious life has had this arc towards simplicity over the years of your life. And, and to me, this feels like a real pull towards simplicity. Like maybe it's just so much more simple than I, than I understood it before, you know, do you want to, maybe as we kind of wrap up, do you want to talk about that at all? Like what, what did you mean by you've, you've felt this arc towards simplicity? Yeah, I mean it in a couple different ways. I think one way links pretty directly to what we've been talking about. It is a super complicated business trying to convince God and other people that you deserve to be loved. (laughs) That is really, really hard work. (laughs) And it's really, really complicated and involves so many variables that are so far out of your control. Right, that it ends up being a continually very frustrating, disappointing kind of thing, even when you're doing really well. Uh, it's not work at which you can succeed. And so I think in one sense, you know, giving up giving that up that project of, of trying to win, of trying to earn and deserve love, uh, it radically simplify it radically simplifies just just the scope of what you're trying to do. Uh, over the course of a given day and why you're trying to do it. I don't have to continually worry about what everybody else thinks. I don't have to continually worry about what God thinks of me. I just have to worry about what's needed right here, what's needed right now. Hand in hand with that, though, I think has been a kind of conceptual simplification, (laughs) right? Uh, Which may be ironic for a professional philosopher uh, who's, you know, whose bread and butter is making things as complicated as possible. Uh, But my experience of the gospel has been that not only on a practical level has that work become simpler and simpler in the edge of it, less sharper and sharper. Uh, But conceptually, theologically, Right. The ideas to which I find myself having a deep and abiding allegiance, the ideas uh, and doctrines that feel like they have uh, deep and profound and life shaping force. Right. Those, that collection of ideas has, has gotten simpler and simpler and sharper and sharper. And I don't, I just, in the same way that I don't find myself worrying about 
many of the practical implications that I used to worry about in terms of whether I could or couldn't succeed or could or couldn't get people to think about me the way I wanted to, them to think about me. I don't, there are lots and lots of ideas that I used to worry about all the time that I, I don't worry about anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they just seem uh, largely immaterial to the actual thrust of, of what's required of me, both practically and theoretically. Love that. Thank you yeah. so much. Is there is there anything else that we missed that you want to say before we wrap up? I just always I just always love talking to you guys. You do a great job, and Faith Matters is a great project, and uh, I'm happy to see it succeeding, and hope it will will get bigger and bigger. Thanks so much. Thanks Adam. so much, Adam. This was awesome. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Adam Miller and a really big thanks to Adam Miller as always for coming on the show. If Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really does help us to get the word out about Faith Matters and we appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening and remember you can check out more at faithmatters.org.